Talking about faith, that's the section of Chemnitz text that we're in. And if you remember, we'll be picking up right around page 81, it looks like. And by way of bringing us back up to speed, if you remember on page 78 at question 161, Chemnitz introduces to us the exclusive particles. Do you remember this? And it's worth reviewing again because this is the scriptural foundation of the doctrine of justification and the scriptural foundation of the distinction between what we'll call justification and sanctification. So very much biblical 101, Lutheran 101 principles But I simply want to show you once more how Chemnitz highlights those at 161, gives you a whole bunch of biblical references so you can look it up and see for yourself. And then on page 79, at question 166, he shows us the practical import. Again, theology isn't just about getting something right so that you can feel good about yourself, that you got it right and maybe everybody else got it wrong. That's hardly the point but rather that these scriptural teachings then have profound practical effect on us and on our lives as Christians. So 166 points this out, that it is necessary to retain the exclusive particles, again, that come to us from the scriptures, for four reasons that Chemnitz cites. First, that due and proper honor be attributed to Christ and to the grace of God. So any credit that you take for yourself is credit immediately taken away from Christ. So all credit, all honor is attributed to Christ and to the grace of God. Second, that conscience might have sure and firm comfort. If it's in any way based upon you, insofar as it is, there's an element or room for doubt. Something that maybe you did or didn't do or thought you did or... Thought you were genuine, but you weren't, etc., etc. So this is all excluded by the exclusive particles. The conscience then might have sure and firm comfort because it's up to Christ and Christ alone, and he has done it for us. Third, that the distinction between law and gospel might be very clear. And this is a point that we're going to take some pains to explicate in the pages to come. But that is to say that law is conditional, and grace is not. The gospel is not. And then fourth, that prayer might have boldness and access with confidence to God, Ephesians 3.12. We talked about this, how a clean conscience in Christ is what leads us into prayer, believing that God has a kind and fatherly heart toward us for the sake of Christ is what motivates us to pray thinking that God might be angry with us or might not hear our prayer on account of our sins or other such invasive thoughts have to be driven away by God's word and by these exclusive particles that God delights in us without condition in Christ Jesus. Okay, so wanted to give you that uh, Refresher. We'll open now with an invocation and prayer and then get on to the new material on page 81. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, question 169 reads this way. But renewal, sanctification, and good works of the reborn are also works of God. Why, then, are they excluded from the circle of justification, as Luther says? Answer. Reasons for this exclusion are very weighty and compelling. For renewal in this life is only begun by us, and it is not complete or perfect. 2 Corinthians 4.16 For because of sin dwelling in the flesh, good works also of the reborn in this life are not perfect, but contaminated and impure in many ways. And then citations to Romans 7 and Isaiah 64 given. In order then that the promise of righteousness, salvation, and life eternal might be firm and sure, and due honor be attributed to Christ, our whole justification, beginning, middle, and end, must consist solely in the free grace of God promised for the sake of Christ alone and apprehended by faith alone. Romans 4.16 Okay, so two general statements, one really from last week and then building upon that statement here. The first statement being that God, upon uh, granting us faith that receives the benefits and merits of Christ, does indeed send his Holy Spirit and renew us. Now, this, as you recall, takes place in one divine act. He gives the gift of faith. Not two separate gifts, but one gift, faith, and this faith has two aspects to it. Fides passiva, which receives the merit of Christ passively, and that is the faith or the aspect of faith upon which justification is predicated. And then second, though, that fides activa, Faith active, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, a new heart, a new mind, a new will, the beginning of new obedience, etc. And however fitful that may actually play out in our lives, it's nonetheless there and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when God gives saving faith, when he converts, he gives us both of these sides of the coin, the one coin being faith. Now, we want to keep a distinction there for all the reasons we mentioned in regard to the exclusive particles. If we blur these things together, you remember what happens? If you blur sanctification and justification together, you end up making your relationship with God contingent upon your own renewed works, your own good works. That's a recipe for disaster. Self-righteousness on the one hand or despair on the other. Simultaneously true is that if we instead of taking sanctification and smushing it into justification, if we take justification and smush it into sanctification, then there is no renewal, there is no growth, there is no maturation of the 
Christian. Both of these are aberrations. Both of these are errors or ditches. The truth lying with the narrow path in the middle. Okay? So again, we want to assert, this is the first point, assert that there is in fact a renewal, an ontological change, a change in our being that God works as we are reborn through water and the Spirit, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and converted. That's point number one. And point number two is that we don't want to confuse this with our standing before God. Make sense? Clear enough? Any questions? Any thoughts? All right. So let's just go on to question 170. Does he then who is justified in this way freely for Christ's sake by faith need anything more for salvation? Paul certainly denies that plainly. Romans 4, 5 through 6. There he maintains that the way in which we are justified and in which we are saved is one and the same. So that he who has justification by faith, the same by that very fact, has adoption, blessedness, or salvation, and the inheritance of eternal life. Therefore, just as we are justified freely by faith alone, for the sake of Christ, without our works, as Paul points out on surest grounds, so that namely the promise of both righteousness and salvation might be firm and sure, Romans 4.16, so it is therefore falsely taught that our good works are necessary for our justification and that no one can be justified without his good works. And so it is also not rightly said that good works are necessary for salvation, and that no one can be saved without his good works. For though true faith, or yes, for though true faith can, excuse me, for though true faith neither can nor ought to be without good works, yet good works do not enter to join in the act or circle, as Luther says, of either justification or salvation. So this would be as good a place as any. If you have your Bible, turn it on. Or if you're a dinosaur, you can open it up. And let's just take a look at this passage upon which Chemnitz's words are built. Romans 4, 5 through 6. And if you want to look on but didn't happen to bring a Bible or maybe accidentally deleted your app, uh, we've got a few over there on the countertop. Help yourself. Okay, at Romans chapter 4, 5 through 6, you see it's a bit in the middle of the argument, so I'd like to just start at the beginning of chapter 4, even though that too is middle of the argument. At Romans 4 verse 1 we read, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. There's one of those exclusive particles, apart from works. And then here's David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So, zooming in to verses 5 and 6, I think it is, yes, 5 and 6, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Okay. Does this mean that it's right and proper for a Christian not to work? No. Does this mean that the goal of the Christian life is to believe that you're justified by grace through faith and then never work? No. Anyone who's read any more than these two verses out of context would understand that. But the point that Paul is making is rather that even to the one who has no works, who does not work, he is still within the sphere of justification because justification is excluded. It's apart from, justification excludes works. It's apart from works. So to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So to have faith that Christ justifies the ungodly is precisely saving faith. And this faith is counted as or reckoned to be righteousness by God. And then here he quotes also David to the effect. Okay, so we get an exclusive particle there in that section. And we see that we are, again, question 170, look how it's framed. Does he then who is justified in this way freely for Christ's sake by faith need anything more for salvation? The answer is no. Salvation is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is that bedrock upon which all our good works are built, but our good works themselves have nothing to do with justification. All right, makes sense. On to the next one. I'm seeing some uh, manufacturing of fans and waving of them, not trying to put anyone to the spot, just saying I sympathize. Hopefully that will help a little bit. All right, on to 171. Yeah? What is the difference between the evangelical and the papistic doctrine in the article of justification and salvation? Answer. The basis of papistic doctrine is that man in this life can fulfill the law of God. Hence, also, some of them teach that by his good works, man can earn and obtain righteousness and salvation before God. Others, in order not to appear to lend support to such crass error, teach that Christ alone, indeed, earned righteousness and salvation for us, but if we want to partake of it, we need faith and good works, by which together the righteousness and salvation procured by Christ is applied to us. There are also those among the papists who teach that our righteousness consists not only in free reconciliation, 
but at the same time also in renewal or sanctification. But the gospel, on the other hand, teaches that also those who are made holy and renewed cannot in this life fulfill the law of God. Various citations given. Psalm 32, 143, Isaiah 64, Romans 7. Therefore, righteousness and salvation is not of our works, but of the merit of Christ alone. Romans 3 and 4 and 10. Likewise, it is the grace and free gift of God, Romans 6. But the means or instrument of apprehension and application is faith alone. Romans 3, 22 and 28 and also 4, 5. Our righteousness and salvation does not consist either in our renewal or in our powers or good works, but in free reconciliation and adoption through and because of Christ. And again, Romans 4, 6 through 7, verses that we just covered, cited. The bases of this doctrine have been pointed out in the preceding. Okay, so maybe helpful to see here in this context is that there Chemnitz here at least categorizes three different kinds of medieval Roman Catholic error in this teaching. And I think you can see all of them still today. Ironically, you can even see them in the American evangelical church, to use a a blanket term there, because you can see this whole idea of if you believe in Jesus and begin to be obedient or and truly repent or put away X, Y, and Z, then you can be saved which is far away as they think they are from Rome. You know, it's kind of this irony, right? It's like, look at, look at this car, it looks like a Corvette. Look at this car, it looks like a jalopy. And you pop the hood on both, and it's just identical internals. It's kind of the difference between Roman Catholicism and American evangelicalism, is they look very different on the outside, but as soon as you pop the hood and look on the inside, they're not so different at all. One of, the, one of the great ironies of our times. So what, again, you see is the introduction, whether crassly or subtly, of a dependence, justification upon something that we do. And that ends up destroying faith, destroying prayer life, destroying certainty, destroying peace in the midst of spiritual trials, etc. Please. Um. Just uh, for clarification, uh, up in the question when it talks about evangelical, is that referring to Lutheran? Because I know that both my baptismal certificate oh. <laughs> and my confirmation certificate says evangelical Lutheran church. And yeah. we, today we use evangelical differently. Right, yeah, great point. So, of course, it's a fairly well-known fact in Lutheran circles that we were called evangelicals because of our emphasis on the gospel. So... Lutherans were the first evangelicals. But in the same way that Satan has systematically ruined all the words, he's done it with evangelical too. So, I mean, you know, as what we aspire to be as Lutherans, which you can even see there how a slur has become our namesake, we obviously want to be Catholic, kataholos, according to the whole. We want to be Orthodox, do we not? giving right or straight or proper glory (laughs) unto God, but also evangelical, Christ-centered, cross-centered, as the scriptures themselves are. And then we want to be, um, in every way, Christian. So you can see how these words have sort of systemically by Satan been attacked so that, you know, 
Are we Catholic? Oh, I don't know. That's problematic. Well, it shouldn't be. Are we Orthodox? Same thing. Shouldn't be. How about Evangelical? Same thing. How about Christians? Same thing. And then, of course, when we actually get to Lutheran, boy, anytime you, you know, what do you do for a living? And I say a Lutheran pastor, immediately flooding into my mind is like, but not that kind. <laughs> so uh, a Lutheran pastor of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod or a Lutheran pastor of the most conservative branch of Lutheranism uh, is frequently what I say. That's the difficulty with Satan constantly attacking and eroding these things. And so. he does seem to be upping his game. He's doing it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, right. With what sex are you? What, I mean, it is pervasive where if you don't come with a sharp hack mind, mm-hmm. you'll simply be turning the knots. Yeah, yeah. The, the lie just, the, you know, you've got, just even just so generally speaking, You've got the word, and you've got meaning, and then you've got the lie constantly trying to subvert that word. Did God really say? No, he didn't. You know, this kind of... Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on your, uh, on your confirmation certificate or on your baptismal certificate, it may well say the Evangelical Lutheran Church, not to be confused with the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which... Frankly, I'm sorry to say it is an apostate church body, Christian in name only. There are Christians within that confession, but they should flee that confession because it's an apostate confession. Uh, Not to be confused with that, why that language of evangelical Lutheran is there, because we don't want to also bind anyone to the Missouri Synod. In all likelihood, if the Lord continues to tarry, there will be a time when the LCMS is no more. That's the way it is for all church bodies, including, by the way, I mean, here's one of the great uh, illusions that are used by Roman Catholic theologians, but the modern Roman Catholic church is older than the modern Lutheran church because its founding is at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is where they reject the Catholic faith of the forefathers and end up anathematizing not only Jesus, not only St. Paul, not only the rest of the apostolic scriptures, but a whole train of church fathers after them. This is something that Martin Chemnitz points out in his examination of the Council of Trent, that in anathematizing all that went before, they cut themselves off and have started something new. In our own language, they've become a new denomination. But the Book of Concord existed before the Council of Trent. So we're actually the older denomination, if you want to get a little quibbly about it. Please. This is just a comment, footnote. Probably all of us who travel south see the And they say, what, the what is it? I'm sign, sorry, I didn't hear. I think it's Herod's Club in, out in Las oh, Vegas. Okay. And they say on the sign, and they say a lot of other things. What is it? How does it say? You see it. I don't know. It's Oh, Herod's the casino? Oh, okay. I, I know the, the one they have now is put the word sin in the 
Oh, and, okay, and yeah. It's yeah, sinful, yeah. sinfully delicious. Oh, oh yeah, right. It's sinfully delicious. Right. So now sin means a rich life. Mm. Yeah, there's a nice little subversion of a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's a great example. Thank you for that. Exactly so. Okay, so back to the main thread, back to the main plot. Whether you have this crass sort of meriting your way into heaven, which, it, I mean, ultimately, like, when this gets in its crassest form, it's like, why did Jesus even need to come? Because anyone can, by doing good works, in theory, remove the, the guilt of his bad words, like credit debit style, you know, you, you get into the red, but you can get back into the black. Why do you need Jesus for that? That's maybe the crassest form of works righteousness that was around to one degree or another in the uh, 16th century. Today, it kind of takes that form, but not so much in the Roman Catholic confession as it does in sort of the general universalism of the pagan worldview around us. That if you're a generally good person, if you do more good than bad, you'll get in. Okay. A very crass form of works righteousness. Okay, what else did we see here then? We saw at the very bottom of 81, after one of the probably 15 or so semicolons, others, in order not to appear to lend to support to such crass error, teach that Christ alone indeed earned righteousness and salvation for us, but if we want to partake of it, we need faith and good works. So those two things added as necessary. And that obviously has its resonance with American evangelicalism around us. And then here's the more subtle one and the more difficult one, the third. There are also those among the papists who teach that our righteousness consists not only in free reconciliation, but at the same time also in renewal or sanctification. So sort of throwing the fruit in while saying that all of that fruit is nonetheless produced by God, but it is still a condition of salvation. So we will, in our readings of the Book of Concord, the Formula of Concord, get into a section where we talk about the majoristic controversy. And some of you, that'll be like blowing the dust off of an old book. It's up there in the library of your mind. But the majoristic controversy, you have George Major, who says that good works are necessary for salvation. And he uses this same same sort of logic that makes sense insofar as it goes. The problem is it goes too far, And it goes beyond what the scriptures say. So this idea that because faith is never alone, it always has good works, then it's necessary to have good works in order to be saved. That's George Major's position. Then Nicholas von Amsdorf, isn't that a great last name? Just sounds so much more, like, there's so much more gravitas there. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, his position is like the opposite error. You know, how often do we see this pattern emerge in theology where it's error, opposite error? And so his position is that of the modern-day radical Lutherans. Good works are dangerous or detrimental towards salvation. Don't do good works because you're trying to supply a righteousness apart from Christ. You're trying to supply your own. I mean, nonsense, of course. But that was Amsdorf's position. What's the position, then, of the Book of Concord? Both of those guys are wrong. Okay? So, it is in fact true 
to kind of give a nod to the grain of truth of Amsdorf's position that uh, good works are, are only detrimental to salvation if they're trusted in. But if one doesn't trust in them, if one trusts, trusts Christ alone, then those good works aren't dangerous or detrimental to salvation. And then to the nod to the half-truth in George Major's position, it is that, yes, good works necessarily flow from genuine or true faith, but they are not included in what justifies. Right, yes, sir? There's another BR here that... um, Faith never acts alone. Faith will always come with good works. Mm-hmm. And that's that portion of what James points out, yeah. that if you have the true faith that you receive without working for it, mm-hmm. it will always follow works. And that, that would prove that you have genuine faith. Yeah. Would, would you say that's Yeah, yeah, accurate? yeah. So to summarize that is this whole shibboleth of uh, we are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It's great. It's fine. Yeah, it's thoroughly biblical. Mm-hmm. Please. Uh, is this right? Um, if it uh, let's see it it complicates being thankful to think um, that justification or salvation comes through faith and works because if it if we do our part and do our works, then it's kind of like, well, I just got, you know, it's like, it's a job. I just got paid for doing what I was supposed to do, and I got what I, was coming to me. Yeah. And that's very different. I mean, one could be thankful for a job, I suppose, but it's very different than receiving a free gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, exactly. I guess that, that, is that correct? Yeah, so, so that's reminiscent of the verse we read leading up to Romans chapter 4. Verses 5 and 6. Do you remember this line from St. Paul? Now, this is verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So, you know, at the end of the day, after you've worked your two weeks or whatever it is, and you receive your paycheck, you don't receive that as a gift. (laughs) You don't write a thank you note to your employer. <laughs> you, if you work, that is your due. And that, this will actually give a more precise coloring to Paul's argument, okay? Because you see that one who works here is the relationship is built or predicated upon the work. An employer doesn't just hand out money to anyone, only to those who work. So do you have an employee-employer relationship with God? Or to use another frame, do you have a slave-master relationship where you're only remaining in the house because of the duty that you do? If a slave stops doing his duty, is the master going to keep him there? No. This is where the scriptures will contrast the master-slave with the father-son. Only one who is a son will remain. The slave will be cast out. Only the son will remain. So I know that this is a confusing point. God thinks we can handle it. 
there is a negative use of the master-slave in contrast to the father-son. There is also a positive use of the master-slave, where Christ is our master and we are his slaves. Okay, both are true. I know that's confusing, but God thinks we can handle it. We probably can. Yeah. So in this vein, working is like having a relationship with God where I've got I've to keep doing his law. I've got to keep being an obedient servant. Otherwise, I'm going to get thrown out. That's not the frame that God would have us operate in. We, he is our father and we are his sons. If he asks us to do something, it's because he loves us. And if we do it, it's because we love him. And performance isn't like, oh, if I don't do this, he's going to throw me out on my ear. That's not the relationship. That's a category error. Make sense? Okay, I didn't see any nodding, but I'm going to pretend in my mind that that makes perfect sense, because at least it did to me. All right. Should we go on? Oh, you had a comment? Please. Yeah, we we just shouldn't get hung up on the prepositions. It's just different angles. We're justified by grace. That's sort of the angle of like, what does God require of us? Nothing. But that's only apprehended like through faith. So what was that? And I we already went over it too fast. But remember, he talks about this. Maybe it was in the first. He talks about it as the instrument of receiving. Do you remember this? Can anybody find it? Where do we start? 169 today? So he touches on this idea, apprehended by faith alone. Maybe it was the end of 169. So just picking up mid-sentence, because it's hard to do anything but that. Life eternal might be firm and, yeah, and sure... And due honor be attributed to Christ, our whole sanctification, beginning, middle, and end, must consist solely in the free grace of God promised for the sake of Christ alone and apprehended by faith alone. So the technical distinction here, I don't know how widespread this distinction was, but the media dodica versus the medium lepticon is just a very helpful if, uh, theological distinction and that is the media dodica are the, the gifts. Okay, that's the easiest way to think of it. The means through which the Holy Spirit works and through which the Holy Spirit, in fact, is given. So these you already know. Word and sacraments. Those are the means that God uses. That's like the wine being poured out. Remember our analogy of this? But what, if the wine's poured out, what good does it do you unless you have a a chalice to capture it, and that chalice to capture it is faith. And so that's the medium lepticon, the means by which these gifts are apprehended. This stuff can be pouring out, but if you don't have anything to apprehend it with, it's just poured out on the ground, it does you no good. Working with the analogy, right? So then faith becomes its own unique focal point as that which receives the pure grace of God. So... Okay, great. All right, are we ready to move on to, is it 172? Yeah, great. 
172, what is the difference between the doctrine of the papists and that of the gospel regarding faith? Answer, the papists teach that faith is only historical knowledge and general assent regarding the truth of the word of God and that this faith justifies inasmuch as it is informed by many and sufficient good works. But since no man can know whether and when he has enough good works, they teach that a believing man may indeed hope and promise himself various excellent things regarding the mercy of God, but he can be sure of nothing certain. That's the key, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute, because this has all kinds of practical implication in terms of the piety, your average piety of your average Roman Catholic versus your average piety of your average Lutheran. He can be sure of nothing certain, but should perpetually remain suspended in doubt. I mean, just look at that. Perpetually remains suspended in doubt whether he truly and surely has a merciful God, remission of sins, and the inheritance of eternal life. Let's pause there because there's enough here to just at least touch on briefly. That is, that because it is in some ways contingent upon you, salvation is somewhat contingent upon you, in common Roman Catholic piety, it is seen as arrogance to have certainty of your salvation. And so rather, because it is contingent upon you, there is always an element of doubt. It is pious and true to live your life doubting, not being certain of, but doubting whether or not you are saved. Mm, a great point that what has grown out of that, well, you have firsthand experience of that. Yeah, what has grown out of that doubt is then constant motivation to, as you pointed out, fill the coffers of the church or do whatever else is necessary. Okay, all right. So I know you weren't a, well, I'll just leave that off so the World Wide Web doesn't have that detail, but. Mm-hmm. Well, and the practice of indulgence has uh, reemerged in mainstream Roman Catholic piety around the so-called anniversary of the Reformation. What was it, six years or so ago? A major plenary indulgence could be was given out freely with a suggested donation, <laughs> as is almost always the case. And there is, I mean, okay. I don't want to be ham-fisted. There is sophistry involved. There are ways around this. There are ways that they talk and argue, but you need to start realizing that it's scholastic. It's sophistic. It's trying to trick you through subtleties and nuances in such a way that you don't see what they're plainly doing. In the same way that they, they go, they light incense to a saint, they pray to a saint, they honor a saint, but, and, and, and again, any common person goes, well, how is that not worship? They go, well, you see, we have these invented categories of latria, hyperdulia, and dulia. When, when you see us before the altar of that saint, even though we're doing the exact thing we do before the altar of God, trust us, that's not worship, that's just dulia. 
Okay. That this kind of sophistry, hyperdulia reserved for Mary and then latria for God. So they use sophistic categories to try to tell you they're not doing something that they plainly are. Yes, sir. Even if you get them to acknowledge that they're not worshiping the saints or Mary or anybody other than God or Christ, yeah, yeah. they shouldn't even be talking to the dead. Uh, yeah. But where do, So how do they answer that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so basically because it's, it's quote-unquote the teaching of the church, okay, which is obviously the false teaching of the papacy, and then retrospectively, they try to cite um, a text, I can't remember where it is off the top of my head, in the Apocrypha, and say that's our proof text. But you have to understand, the way of Roman Catholic theology, and this is the same for some, it's just more crassly done in American evangelicalism, so it's easier to spot, but it's no different in Rome. Rome will come up with a doctrine, and then because they want that doctrine to appear to be convincing, they go back and try to quote scriptures to fit it. Okay? And that, that's the case. So same with purgatory, this idea that there's a specific locale and you're going to spend a specific amount of time there. That's not in the scriptures. But they'll grab a hold of scriptures that seem to say something similar or say something but stop well short of where they, and they'll quote that to the effect of, see, this is what the scriptures teach. In truth, though, it's a dishonest move. They don't even care because the papacy is itself a source of doctrine, a source of dogma. So in Rome, the papacy is a source of dogma. So are the scriptures. They don't need within their own system the scriptures to assert anything because if the pope asserts it, it's as good as the scriptures, you see? So why do they bother going back and trying to tack on the scriptures? They don't need it in terms of their own internal theology or their own internal system. Why they do that is to deceive you, to deceive the quote-unquote Protestant into believing that this is in fact biblical, when even within the Roman system you don't need that. It doesn't need that criteria. What do they do when they contradict what the Pope says and it doesn't go along with Scripture? Because I think that's happened fairly recently with this Pope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obvi- in obvious ways. Right. It's, it's a wake-up call to anyone who has integrity, inside or outside of the Roman communion, to come to terms with the fact that they have a Pope who rejects the Scriptures. Now, if you are a Okay, I'm going to use these terms kind of loosely. If you are a faithful, pious, born and raised Roman Catholic, your de facto position is that the Pope, whatever the Pope says cannot ultimately conflict with the Scriptures or contradict the Scriptures. Now, we're going to make a distinction here, another sophistry, what the Pope says ex cathedra. Whatever he says in an interview here or there or maybe writes privately or even publicly in some kind of news article or something, uh, that's not ex-cathedra. It doesn't raise to the level of um, ex-cathedra from the seat, from the throne, dogma from the Pope. But you have to understand that if if you're a faithful Roman Catholic, you believe as a presupposition 
that what the Pope says ex cathedra and what the scriptures say cannot contradict because they're animated by the same Holy Spirit. And they're two sources of authority animated by the Holy Spirit. So it just never even enters their mind as a possibility. And even if they think they see it, they'll just say, well, I'm not sophisticated enough to see it. I'm not a, I'm not a, a deep enough theologian. I'm not a holy enough person to see um, how these don't contradict. So I'm just going to submit myself. This is all above my pay grade, and I'm going to continue to submit myself to the papacy. So that's how it works. So while I'm being really hard and really critical on, and so is Chemnitz, so frankly are the scriptures, on the papacy and on uh, papistic Rome, you can see how there's very dear souls and very well-intended Christian souls trapped up and wrapped up in this system. Now, insofar as they simply cling to Christ and Christ alone, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, period. Again, we're not graded upon, you know, Upon death, we're not all graded with a theological exam. God be praised for that. <laughs> um, doesn't mean the theology isn't important. It is, because it can mislead people into dependence upon themselves and into a rejection of Christ or faith in a false Christ. So it's of the utmost importance that we get this right and that we contradict error. But that should by no means be misunderstood as a lack of sympathy for Christians tangled up in the Roman communion. We love them, and want to share fellowship with them. So, uh, yeah, it's understanding the, understanding the papal system will get you to see that anything the Pope says ex cathedra carries its own authority, and you don't really need the scriptures. They're tacking the scriptures on after the fact for you to try to get you to buy into it. In my experience, uh, a few Roman Catholics that I know, they are really conflicted with this present pope. But are you aware mm. of John Smirak, who is a dyed-in-the-wool Roman Catholic? Mm, but he so. has openly said that he believes that the current pope is an atheist. Every once in a while, he may have an agnostic thought in his mm. mind. No. But, <laughs> <laughs> he, gets the, he elevates that he high says up. He says he's right, so yeah. bad. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, so back to 172 in that first paragraph. Here's the key that official Roman Catholic doctrine on the books in their catechism says to be certain of one standing before God is arrogance, is sinful. You have to be in doubt. What is the Lutheran response to that? Certainty is predicated not upon anything within me, because then it truly is doubtful, but predicated upon the word of God. Does God lie? And especially predicated upon that word of God as it applies to me personally and individually. Am I baptized? Then God has put his name on me. So, are you baptized? God has put his name on you. He has claimed you as his own. You are his own child. Okay? Now, you might doubt that. But why would you doubt that? Because of something within you. Maybe you're worried about your faith being genuine, or you're worried about the fruits, or you're worried about your hypocrisy, or you're worried about this side or the other thing, but that's all of that doubt comes from you. When you turn instead to God, the question is, is does God lie? And if God does not lie, then our certainty is predicated upon him, his word, and his truthfulness. And in that sense, we're absolutely certain. So to expand just a little bit on this, we can say, I was saved, I am saved, and I will be saved. All of those statements are true, rightly understood. And all of those statements can be made with a clean conscience and an upright heart and indeed a joyful spirit. 
when we realize that it's all up to God, and God has spoken, and God does not lie. Okay, did I see a hand trying to wave around? Maybe I didn't. Imagine it. One of the things I was thinking about before you got there, mm-hmm. right there, is why don't we as a local church delineate that huge difference? We have no doubt when we're properly holding mm-hmm. what religion and tenets are. Whereas the evangelicals have doubt that's why they're falling away. Mm-hmm. The Catholics are falling away. You know, they, we're not going to church anymore. You know? mm-hmm. We have this one thing, and it's kind of a doubt. That he, that's a huge. What comfort can you have when you still have that doubt? Mm-hmm. With, I mean, it's the only thing that binds me to believe in Christian. I'm so grateful to my parents that there was never any other consideration. And even when I got old enough to look around a little bit, I just said, "Whoa, I'm glad." There's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. It's a great point, you know, and it's the reason why God commands us to go to church every Sunday and receive his gifts every Sunday. It's not as though God changes, but we do change. And that's, you know, we heard it in the text in this morning's service. If you stand, take heed lest you fall. There's a lot of Christians in America who think, well, I'm a Christian. I don't need the church. I don't need the word of the sacraments to be a Christian. There is, of course, a kind of arrogance there. But the assumption underlying that arrogance is this idea of, well, God's not going to change and I'm not going to change. The problem is we do change all the darn time. Sin is the invitation to fall into despair or self-righteousness. Sin is the ante at the poker game that whatever demon the devil has assigned to you, he's going to play that in order to overturn your faith, wreak havoc in your life, and if not then and there, through a long, slow poisoning, to where eventually um, you lose that faith in Christ, you lose that clean conscience given to you. So to be continuously renewed by the word and sacraments of God is essential on account of the fact that we change and we're daily attacked and assaulted. Yes, sir. Um, And yet, uh, baptism isn't a a rabbit's foot. Certainly. Not everybody that's baptized is going to show up in heaven. Yeah, certainly. Um, As with with the gospel itself, it's not a rabbit's foot. It's a mode and means of, of God speaking to us and God acting upon us that's to be received in faith. These things can always be rejected. They can always be despised and ignored. We can always walk away from them. Uh, consciously or even unconsciously to some degree. Uh, so yeah, that's, this is the constant and continual language of, of Jesus himself to be on guard, stay awake. Why would he say those things? Because there's a temptation or there's, an, uh, there's a possibility to have these things snatched away from you. There's a temptation to fall asleep spiritually and go off with the false dream of this world. So with those warnings and admonitions, our Lord is calling us to realize that we are subject to change, though God is not, to continuously receive his gifts so that we mitigate that change by the stability we have in him. All right? Maybe time for just one more. Or what? no, the last paragraph, in fact, of 172. So what is the difference between the doctrine of the papists and that of the gospel regarding faith 
And the first paragraph, the real take-home point is this idea of surety and how a Roman Catholic, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, can be sure of nothing certain. Second paragraph, the gospel, on the other hand, teaches that this is chiefly the nature, character, and function of faith beyond that general assent that it apprehends Christ and applies the general promise of the gospel regarding the grace of God separately to individual believers. And it does not build righteousness in love by which it works, but only on Christ, whom it apprehends in the word and the sacraments. And since the promise of God in Christ is firm, true, and trustworthy, faith does not look at its own weakness and imperfection to doubt and hesitate because of it, but looks to Christ and the grace of God promised in Christ, and thus surely and firmly concludes that by grace for Christ's sake, it has a merciful God and remission of sins. So in, well, maybe it will be helpful to remind you of that threefold distinction really developed more fully in later Lutheranism between uh, notitia, essentia, and fiducia, Notitia being just simply a knowledge of the facts. Okay. You, can, you can have an atheist who has the knowledge of the facts of Christianity. You'll see some street evangelists on YouTube go up and say, do you, you know, do you know anything about Jesus? Do you know what he did for you? And many, many of these people on the streets who are not Christian and don't reconcile themselves Christian will say, yeah, he died on the cross to take away our sins. Okay, that's notitia. They have a knowledge of it. But they don't assent to it. There's no essentia that it's true, that it's objectively, historically, factually true. Among some, you will find that, that there's essentia. That is what James calls the faith of demons. They not only know the facts, they assent to the facts that they're true. You can find some unbelievers in this, in this position also. But simply because one has a knowledge of the facts and even agrees that those facts are true, we're not yet at saving faith. We're only at demonic faith. Saving faith is that third category of fiducia, which is entrusting oneself into Christ's hands. So in the words of like Psalm 119, I am yours, save me. That simply throwing oneself upon the mercy of Christ is faith. And that's what, that's what Chemnitz is getting at here in this paragraph where he's talking about um, beyond general assent, beyond a knowledge and assent that these things are true, faith is that which apprehends Christ and applies the general promise of the gospel regarding the grace of God, etc., etc., to oneself. That's what faith does. God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ, right? Okay. Questions or comments on that last paragraph? Okay. I saw, I saw one up front here. We can do that quick. We've got a couple minutes, although the breakfast is starting to smell good. So, Why the phrase um, is kind of in the middle, and it does not build righteousness on love. Oh, yeah, because love, properly speaking, is a fruit of faith. So one, th- one thing to have in your mind, and I know this can be a little difficult too, but yeah, it's, it's just part of the word of God. Sometimes in God's word, love is used synonymously for faith. Sometimes in God's word, obedience is used synonymously with faith. 
They mean the same exact thing. The context will bear that out or show that. But properly speaking, in terms of just actually using definitional categories, and this really comes from verses we find in uh, the Pauline writings, faith flows for, or excuse me, love flows forth from faith. So that means that love is a fruit of faith. One way to get here would be to think of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments have two tables. Remember this? Commandments 1 through 3 have to do with God, and 4 through 10 have to do with our neighbor. But when you boil those down, it's love for God and love for neighbor. Remember how Jesus says this? So if new obedience is beginning to fulfill the commandments, then new obedience is beginning to love. Does that love flow forth from faith or not? Yes, it does. So then faith comes first, love second. That's the kind of category that Chemnitz is using here. Good enough? All right. The Lord be with you.